0: Okay, Jeff, um, so we were just chatting uh, before we hit record, and I'm really keen on this conversation. I think it's going to be helpful to a lot of the leaders out there who read us and who listen to us and uh, who feel like something is different right now, um, who feel like they're operating in, in sort of tighter uh, constraints than they've operated in before, but who may not be able to describe um, what's going on from a macroeconomic perspective and, and why this feels different to them. So let's dive right in. You've been speaking to a lot of our clients and you've been helping them make sense of their context and what has shifted. Um, why don't Why don't you share with us what those conversations have sounded like? What are your observations and, and how are you helping um, founders and CEOs and investors in this moment make sense of what is different uh, than the last decade and, in fact, decades before?
1: Yeah, thanks, Angie. So the first thing I tell people I'm speaking to is you're not crazy. It is different. This is a very different point in time. There are different factors going on, and you, as a CEO, are under uh, CEO, founder, executive, are under unique pressures with a unique set of constraints. And there are going to be some people who are going to get lucky, um, and they're going to navigate that well. And there's going to be some people who are purposeful and skilled to navigate that well. And most people are going to get really damaged by it. Because whenever any human being is confronted with something that's completely novel and completely new, regardless of whether that causes fear or excitement or whatever, we don't really have a playbook for navigating it. And right now, I believe there is no playbook. And And take it from me, I was an entrepreneur in 1987 when uh, the stock market completely decimated itself. I was a CEO during the tech wreck. I was in big companies during great recession i was a ceo during the pandemic i've I've been through a large number of these things and it's very easy for someone who's been through a lot of these to say like oh this is pretty similar it's an economic downturn but the more i've talked to my clients the more i've talked to investors the more i've talked out in, in public the more i've come to realize there's a unique confluence of things here that make this a uniquely challenging moment four founders. And so the first thing I say is, Hey, you're not crazy. This is, this is really bad. This is really tough. And it's unlikely to get easier anytime soon. Um, so that's the first thing I say to them. And then, and then through those conversations and just, you know, we deal with hundreds upon hundreds of leaders and many, many companies. I'm listening to our partners. I'm listening to our coaches. And I'm starting to figure out like, what is the template for understanding that? what's the way we can make sense of what's unique about this moment and different about this moment and what we can do about it. So I'm, I'm incredibly uh, excited about this topic because I hope it can give some sense making, some productive sense making to the people we care about, the people out there every day trying to create great companies and also help them understand there is a path forward. Even though there's no real playbook, there's no like just go do your McKinsey best practice thing. This is how you deal with it. But there is a method of navigating super confusing, incredibly constrained times and winning in those. There, There's a method for doing that, which of course is something that we believe we're expert in. And so um, I'm just very excited about this topic.
0: All right, I'm glad to hear it. So give us a sense of, you, you sort of compared the moment we're in now um, to prior upheaval and prior downturns. But you describe this as different. Can you give us a sense of what you're seeing as different?
1: So the first thing I want to do, just briefly, before we get into this, you know, talentism is very framework driven. It's very first principles driven in our thinking. So I just want to start with defining some terms because I think this could be more helpful to navigate if I define these terms. So the first thing is we've talked a lot here about confusion and why confusion is a big deal at any point, but especially if you're in a growth or fast change sort of environment. Confusion is endemic. It's inevitable. And you either can deal with that effectively and turn it into clarity and win with clarity, or you can be consumed by it. And uh, so we, we've talked about that in the past. But it's important to understand about confusion for the purposes of what we're about to talk about, that confusion starts with expectation. And almost all of the leaders that we work with uh the business leaders the founders the ceos that we work with have built a set of unconscious expectations over the last 15 years that's by and large the period of time in which most of the companies that we are working with were started sometime in the last 15 years or where a change of ownership or control occurred such as in a private equity context That really sort of resets the clock on the business and and brings a new sort of strategic focus and new leadership to that. And I'd say 95% of the companies we're dealing with occurred within that 15 year window. And it's important to understand that post Great Recession, post 2008, the government's efforts to try to deal with the pain of the Great Recession have led to an extremely cheap capital environment. I think Howard Marks of um, Oak Capital did an incredibly good job of sort of piecing this apart in his essay. People far far smarter than me have done a good job of this, but it's important to understand like every day we sort of experience things and those experiences unconsciously go to form mental models. And then we sort of start believing the future will be like the past. And this is the form of expectation. And when the future isn't the same as the past, when we're experiencing something that's very different than the past, we become confused. And confusion and uncertainty are a big part of cost, which we'll talk about next. So, so this confusion thing is sort of a call for leaders to sort of step back and say, wow, I really have been in a cheap capital, relatively stable environment over most of the length of my business, pandemic aside, of course. And that set a set of expectations, which no longer are productive. They just don't help me deal with my reality. The second thing I wanna talk about is cost. I'm gonna talk about things like cost of capital and cost of growth and cost of talent. And when I say cost, I don't mean price. And this is a common cognitive bias and heuristic problem in the human mind. So to, to illustrate the difference between cost and price, let's say I have two vendors I'm working with. One vendor charges $20 an hour and the other vendor charges $100 an hour. So we'll call them 20 and 100. So I'm giving them both the same goal. I have the same sort of objective for them to achieve. The $20 an hour vendor, it takes me a couple hours giving them an update, trying to get them adjusted, et cetera. Then takes them 10 hours to do the work. Takes another 10 hours to iterate on that work because it really wasn't that good. Then it takes another 10 hours for them to redo the work. Eventually you're, let's say in the, 50 hour range of total work to get that goal done. Um, or, you know, a thousand bucks cost you a thousand bucks to get that work done. The hundred hour person, highly expert in what they do, they take a couple of minutes to get in sync with you. And after two hours, they produce something that's really good. You just have to tweak it a little bit more. They do it, put another hour, you're done. That's 300 bucks. $300 versus thousand dollars is the cost it's the cost of not only the total capital required to to achieve that goal it's also all the time you have to put in to make that work so lower price items often have higher costs than higher cost items and this is important to understand because the human mind loves shiny objects and price is a shiny object and so we we constantly in the midst of efficiency In the midst of like all these things that we're trying to deal with, capital constraints, et cetera, we tend to look at price, not cost. That kills businesses. You have cost constraints, not price constraints. So I want to talk, I want confusion and cost. Let's let's set that up. In business, in the businesses we work with, not in all businesses, but of course, but in the businesses we work with, there are three big pillars, big items that we find that CEOs are dealing with. So they're dealing with capital, they're dealing with talent, and they're dealing with growth. And I want to talk about cost of capital, cost of talent, and cost of growth, and why confusion and uncertainty are at the core of a lot of those costs, and why the combination of those three things, higher cost of capital, higher cost of talent, and higher cost of growth, combines into a really unique period of time for leaders to be working out of. So cost of capital, anybody who's out there trying to raise an equity round, trying to get leverage for their PE business or trying to access debt, knows the capital markets are mostly frozen, especially for riskier ventures like venture capital or highly leveraged private equity. Everybody's experiencing that. And and this is a problem because, I mean, a lot of the companies that we work with, again, in the last 15 years, have gotten used to solving talent and growth problems with cheap capital. That has been the template they've used in order to grow and grow and attract talent. And when cheap capital goes away, they don't have great tools at their disposal to to deal with talent and growth. Now, in most economic downturns, one or the other of those becomes something you don't have to deal with. For instance, if if uh, talent is demanding higher salaries, and then there is an uh, economic downturn, typically those calls for higher salaries goes away. So the cost of talent tends to go down, but we're not seeing that. We're not seeing that this, um, you know, so far the layoffs and those kinds of economic activities have led to a loosening of the talent markets. And in fact, what you're still seeing is a great deal of compression at the top of the talent markets, for um, people who have the right pedigrees or have the right sort of experience or brand, those people continue to demand not only higher wages, but be able to dictate the terms of their employment, which is, which is at first. So we'll talk about that in cost of talent, but in cost of capital, when capital becomes more expensive, then you lose that as a lever to use to solve talent and growth problems. And capital is more expensive, not only because it just literally is more expensive to buy a dollar now costs more than it costs to buy a dollar two years ago, but also because of the degree of uncertainty and the expectations around that capital. So once again, the people we've worked with by and large got used to using cheap capital to solve difficult talent and growth problems. And the way this sort of looked internally to us, because we gather a lot of data, we work with a lot of companies, is there was endemic confusion inside fast growth, big change organizations. And that confusion, rather than being dealt with through effective management, was dealt with through overhiring and overspending, which we call waste. Any allocation of capital should either produce a a beneficial result to a key stakeholder above the cost of that capital or learning that enables a um, better result in the future or waste. And waste is where you get neither good result nor learning. You're just throwing money at a problem and it isn't getting any better and it isn't success. And so we saw cheap capital funding a lot of waste. And that was acceptable because that thing was keep rolling forward until the key stakeholders could exit and sort of hand off that problem to somebody else. And so the founder could get out of the company um, doing very well for themselves before, uh, you know, the stock market crashed or, or whatever. And so there wasn't a great deal of incentive at any point in the system to operate looking at waste or looking at, uh, or staring at how do we increase productivity or efficiency, but with inflation and then the inevitable ra- rise of the cost of capital, as well as the uncertainty in the capital markets, the cost of capital has gone up. The uncertainty around access to that capital has gone up. So in our private equity clients, what we hear is, Hey, listen, I used to be two, three X levered. And that was a, a way that we would think about how to run our business." You'd never want to be 6x levered because you couldn't run your business. So just the cost of servicing that debt would be destroy your company. But all of a sudden, being 2 to 3x levered is the same exact cost as being 6x levered two years ago. So we're now completely constrained by our capital servicing. And then in startups, what you saw was as long as we get to MVP, as long as we get to um, you know, some level of market acceptance, as long as we get to some growth. It really doesn't matter that we're burning a ton of cash. We'll go in and say we need enough money to get through two years of burn to get to the next level, but if we only had that cash last a year, which was pretty inevitable, like say one thing to the venture community and under deliver on that if that if it only if it if it only lasts a year, that's okay because the capital markets are cheap and they're easy, and like I can go back and get it so there's an entire template of like there's certainty in how to access capital, there's certainty around the cost of that capital, and, there's, and that enables me to mostly be blind to other costs. So, so the one is the cost of capital, that, that has changed, that's a fundamental driver of business decision-making. I understand that personally, as CEO of a fast-growth business, like cost of capital lives with me every day. And it's a critical component of how I think about running the business. And, and for the hundreds of clients we work with, it's a critical component of how they think about it.
0: If I can interrupt you, I just want to make sure that those who are following along are building the model in their head that you're laying out for us. Because I think what you're doing here is giving us a model to understand what we're experiencing. And so the three levers in the model I've heard you articulate are cost of capital, which has felt relatively cheap to most people who are currently running earlier growth stage businesses that have been started in the last decade or 15 years or something like that. So cost of capital, number one. Number two, I'm hearing cost to achieve growth, what it takes to drive growth for a business. And then three, I'm hearing cost of talent. And I'm hearing that the way that cost of talent is changing is not just salaries are going up, but the way that the talent can dictate the terms on which they operate with the organization is changing as well. So the mindset around all of these three things is something that is is new and requires some adaptation. So I just want to make sure folks are kind of building along with you as you go.
1: Perfect. Okay. That's beautiful. That's why you're that's why you're the best. Yes, that's <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying.
0: Okay, all right, let's keep going.
1: Okay, so let's go to cost of talent, because I think this is really an area that's been fundamentally disrupted in everybody we talk to. But like I think Elon Musk has become the patron saint of the past, and people are surprised when I say that. But what Elon is sort of demonstrating with his Twitter adventures is a dictatorial control mechanism that treats talent like trash it can succeed and everybody's watching that. Uh, I've talked to so many CEOs that are watching that because they're like, God, I hope he, he succeeds. Cause I've got that playbook. I know how to treat talent like trash. I know how to like, I know how to do these things. Um, not because I think it's right or wrong, but because every day is really tough and I've got that playbook, this playbook, I'm sort of experienced this situation I'm experiencing instead where. I cannot afford to lose my best people and my best people are way out of sync with me about what they want from work like my my as a leader expectation of what from the, of them and their expectation of me are way way out of sync and it would be so nice and so comfortable just to get back to the old days where I didn't have to give a shit about what they cared about and now I have to give a shit a lot about what they care about so this has been a fundamental disruption and everybody's hoping That Elon and Mark and all these people can sort of demonstrate that there's just been this weird pandemic blip, right? It's just like weird Gen Z intersection with pandemic, with lots of cheap capital to the consumer. That makes them all silly. Like that just gets them all crazy. And they think they actually have a voice and they think they actually know what they're talking about, but they don't. And now the control is going to come back to me. And it's undeniable that if we head into an an economic downturn, people will get more concerned with their pocketbook and they'll probably be willing to go backwards somewhat to deal with uh, endemic, terrible management, endemic, terrible leadership. They'll probably be willing to do that no matter how awful it is for the company, no matter how ineffective it is as a business proposition in today's world, they'll probably be willing to. But there's a great deal of the population that I think is fundamentally reset. And they won't be they're just not going to be willing to, and I think you see this in the labor statistics where you're seeing labor economists really struggle to understand where the hell did the workers go um, they're, like it's not like there's an easy sort of diagnosis to why people in a tight labor market aren't returning to aren't returning to work and my opinion is it's because a lot of people have sort of said, I'm not up for that grand bargain anymore. So so the grand bargain between employers and employees, between, you know, um, management and labor, and let's maybe say capital and management labor, the grand bargain has been managers will provide an opportunity for labor, that that opportunity um, for work, uh, paid work, that opportunity will be consistent and it will be secure. And then labor is going to show up and they're not really going to worry about what they're good at or what they care about, their values, any of that stuff. They're going to say, hey, look, I'm willing to give up my autonomy. I'm willing to give up my sense of purpose. I'm willing to give up my sense of mastery in order to participate in this grand bargain because you're going to give me a really stable, lifelong job and that's going to be great. And even though that lifelong bargain got busted in the 80s and hasn't really been around since then, it's still a key part of how we think about labor economics and labor relations in the United States, that there's this sort of exchange between the employer and the employee, and the employer is offering up something big, meaningful, and stable, and therefore the employee or labor is willing to give up stuff of great uh, meaning to them such as purpose, autonomy, and mastery, in order to have that. But as I said, in the 80s, that all got blown up. And it is more so true now than ever that I don't know of any employer who feels they can afford, again, this isn't a bad new, bad people thing, I don't know of any employer who feels they can afford to make a lifelong guarantee to an employee. They don't feel they can afford that because they are competing in a world where their competitors aren't offering that and are able to move, they feel are able to move faster as a result. And so, every employer I work with, every employer Talentism works with, no longer even entertains the lifelong, you know, lifelong security thing. That's that's like a relic. That's like dinosaurs. Because if I was to do that, I I, I would be screwed. I, I wouldn't be competitive. I, I literally and frankly. I think if you talk to them even more, they'd say, by the way, the people who are really hot in this job market would never want that anyway. Like, even if I could say, tell you what, give up your purpose, autonomy, and mastery, uh, and I'll give you lifelong an employee, they'd say, no, I'm not, there's no amount of money you can give me that is making me willing to give, uh, to trade that. I have come to under, I, employee, have come to understand that my sense of meaning and commitment to what the organization does, the products we produce, and the value of my work, the ability for me to not live under a dictatorial regime of a completely incompetent manager, and the opportunity for me to improve at my, at my work, in my craft, at my skills, those things, I don't think I have to go bankrupt in order to find a place that has, that'll give me that. And by and large, they're right. If they really care about that and they've got something to offer in this job market, employers are going to dance to that tune. And so employers are really stuck because they think that they keep wishing that this whole, you know, they can revert back to the power dynamics of the past. And amongst the employees they're most dependent on, they never will be able to get there. They're never going to make that return. And I talked to these employees and some of these really big employers um, that are depending on this, the Metas and Googles and Facebooks and, you know, Teslas and all that stuff, and th- th- they're not buying it. They believe that the labor market will continue to be liquid even in a, even in a recession and that they, will, they can basically set their own terms, not just in comp, but in the um, jobs they want to do where they want to work from, the amount of time they want to put into that, the other priorities they want in their life, and the expectation of what that employer is going to stand up for in the marketplace, their set of values, what they commit to, what they care to, the kinds of people they'll work with, sell to, kinds of products they'll produce. And so the cost of talent, remember, cost not just being like comp, but the amount of attention you have to put as a leader into the talent equation It's very, very high, and it's never been this high before. If you sort of look at cost as like total loaded comp for the people I need to to achieve my growth and strategic objectives, times the amount of attention I have to put in as a leader to make sure that we're building a place that these people want to come to, figuring out where they're confused and helping them get better, Structuring management so that we can actually uh, have a place that these people say, Yeah, I am. I have the appropriate amount of autonomy. I have purpose alignment. I'm getting better at my job, all of which requires excellent management. The amount of attention that goes into that is huge. And so I don't think the cost of labor has ever been higher. The cost of talent has ever been higher. And I don't think that's going away. It may go away in the aggregate or decrease a little bit in the aggregate at some levels, but in the people who are going to drive the technologies of the future, in the people who are the creatives, the people have good synthesis, the excellent managers, the leaders who can envision a new world, they're going to call the shots even at a downturn, and they aren't going to go choose to work for... Um, you know, the old school dictatorial managers who believe that even though they aren't offering security, they aren't offering all these things, they still get to be complete jerks. I think that world is gone. And so cost of capital is the second thing that I think is fundamentally adjusted.
0: So, Jeff, you've walked us through systemic changes in cost of capital. So not only is capital more expensive, but the, uh, reliability of access to capital, uh, is changing, right? So if I expected I would be able to raise, um, on a certain timeline and because of being able to hit certain targets, now that's changing as well, which means how I lever my business, um, what I can use capital to compensate for in my business. Those things are changing on me. And I've all, you also heard you talk about how the talent market is changing, not only, Do we see things like wage growth, meaning that uh, talent is more expensive? But the terms on which talent is willing to engage with leaders of organizations, what they're willing to give up, that's changing as well. So these are two critical parts of the model that you're building for the people who are reading or who are listening along. There's a third piece. Uh, which is the cost of growth or the way that dri- being, driving growth is changing. So tell us what you're seeing there.
1: Yeah, so in starting this conversation, let's, let's go back to how I think most startups, and, and by startup, I mean, you know, all the way from seed stage, friend and family, all the way through like going public. Let's just paint that pretty broadly, especially in an era of cheap capital. And also in private equity backed companies, not the big you know I'm buying it for fifty billion kind of thing, but like I'm buying a hundred and fifty million two hundred million dollar asset um, and basically, in addition to the investor protecting themselves with solid financial engineering and good terms and all that kind of stuff, they're really depending on growth, either top line or bottom line, in order to try to improve valuation so they can they can make a good investment. They can get a good return on their investment. So in both those cases, again, over the last, let's say, you know, since 2008, the era of cheap capital, you've seen an approach to growth that I think has been very much about let many flowers bloom and we're just going to pick the biggest ones. And so in a large company, classically growth is, hey, we've got these product lines that we know are... You know, way beyond product market fit. They're product market leaders. Um, and we know we can allocate some incremental innovation, some marketing push, maybe some partnership, some different things to sort of juice the market. Like we already know Tide's good, but we can add Tide with super duper cleaner. And then we can, you know, make people understand how. Not being clean is terrible, and we there's levers we can move in order to move more product. But when you're in a smaller company, the approach is sort of like, hey, we're going to try about 10 different things, and one of them is going to work. And so we're going to try to get to MVP with a bunch of stuff, and we're going to try to get to um, and move from MVP to broader acceptance in a lot of different areas. And we hear this all the time, right? Cheap capital fueled an ability to not have to say no, to not have to actually say, I got a pick and this is my pick. Like there are 10 opportunities for growth, but I can only allocate attention and capital to one of them. So this is the horse I'm betting on. The other nine are dead. That has not been our experience. Our experience has been, I got 10, I'm going to feed 10. I'm not going to feed 10 well, in other words, I can probably capitalize 10. I'm not going to feed well 10 well with attention. I'm definitely not going to learn much based on those 10. I'm not going to feed those well with good um, leadership or management. But capital sort of covers all those problems, um, makes all those problems secondary. And so that's the way I'm going to do it. In a capital-constrained and now talent-constrained environment, because you're starting to see like, geez, um, I can't just take, I, CEO, can't just take my best person, quote-unquote best person, and give them the four top priorities. They used to have two, and now they have four. And they just got to figure out how to be as successful as they were with two, with four. The talent is saying, nope, (laughs) nope, either pay me a ton more or like, no, thanks. I don't need it. And so there's this talent constraint there. There's this capital constraint there. So the cost of growth, both by virtue of not having an adequate playbook, not having the appropriate or productive expectations, and also the amount of uncertainty in what is going to work when you can't push these things through to MVP with just a ton of capital means that the cost of growth has gone up substantially. The requirement, now just be clear the requirement for capital, the requirement for talent, the requirement for growth has gone up as well. So there's the requirement for those things and there's the cost of those things, which really forms the sort of walls of the prison that most of the leaders we work with feel is like I'm in a prison and I can't bust out because the walls of this thing are five feet thick. And every time I try to chip through one, it just doesn't end. Like I keep chipping and chipping and it just like, I talk to more investors and I still don't have capital. I try to demand people come back to work three days a week and my best people leave. I try to um, give, you know, the 10 growth projects to two people instead of five. And then they say, no, no way. I'm not going to do it. So, so they keep trying to chip through these things. And that's why it feels like a prison. They're trying to get out and, they, and it's holding them pretty well. Um, but the cost of growth has gone up as a result that the old playbook of, I can, I can afford to be wasteful in a lot of areas and I still can get growth. The waste doesn't pay anymore. You just can't cover it. So you either have to have great learning or great success and you need productivity to do either one of those. Um, that's why the cost of growth has gone up. And so they intertwine with each other. These three factors intertwine with each other, but the cost of all three of these have gone up at the same time. And what I'm saying is unique um, is that I don't think there's a point in modern commercial history where the demands and requirements of capital, talent, and growth have been as high and the costs have been as high at the same time. I don't think that's that's been true in modern commercial history and so there isn't a playbook here to turn to like this is just what you do. I just have to talk to the entrepreneur who made it through the tech wreck. I can tell you as an entrepreneur who went through the tech wreck when the cost of capital went through the roof nobody was expecting growth and talent um was real cheap. <laughs> so you didn't, you didn't have all three of these things um, getting at the same time.
0: I want to take a moment and let the heft and severity of what you just said sink in. So, we're talking about these three interrelated factors the cost of capital, the cost of talent, and what it takes to drive growth. And I'm hearing you say that not only are there systemic reasons where the cost of each of these things is higher but that the demand for them, the requirement to be able to uh, access capital, hire talent, equip and enable them to do their best work and to achieve growth, uh, that that's at a peak as well. And so this you're describing as sort of an unprecedented scenario, um, un- unprecedented sort of in the, in the working lifetimes of, uh, of those that we're, we're working with at Talentism. And so give us a bit of the so what and, and maybe help us with, um, you know, what what does this feel like as an executive? Uh, if you have anecdotes to share of, you know, uh, h- how might somebody listening kind of relate to um, what this means for the decisions that they're having to make, um, the trade-offs that they're facing? just situate us in what it's actually like to be dealing with these that these sort of compounded constraints
1: yeah i mean i was talking to a to a person i work with last week and you know i'm i'm talking to them every couple of weeks both as a partner in for their business as well as their coach and i think this was this was a pretty typical conversation and this was i think a series c series d company that I was asking the CEO to sort of navigate, founder CEO, to navigate me through their day. And he was like, well, first of all, he said, everything, I've, I've taken control. And, and I said, okay, well, what does that mean? he says, every rec, every new um, hire has to be approved by me. Every expense above 5,000 bucks has to be approved by me. So that's a big part of my day is just trying to scare people to not spend money. I said, okay, and what else are you doing? And he said, okay, well, the second thing I'm doing is I'm trying to force our managers to be very harsh in identifying their underperformers and get rid of them and then take their work, uh, you know, the work that's left behind and give it to the top performers. So I said okay and then what else he said I'm trying to keep our top performers excited and so every day some person I know is mission critical to this business slacks me or emails me or you know when we're in the office comes by the office and says I'm just telling you I'm thinking of leaving and then I got to spend the next hour cuz that sort of happens ad hoc Um, unpredictably. Then I got to spend the next hour telling them how bright the future is and all that kind of stuff. And I said, is that working? Like, are they sticking around? He said, I don't know. They, I don't feel like they really trust me much anymore. To be honest, I feel like um, they're just listening patiently and trying to see what's in it for them because they've really lost faith in the vision and then leadership. I said, okay. And then what else? And he said, well, I'm I really am trying to figure out how to find a bridge round, um, and that could be equity, that could be, like I'm out there talking a lot to our current investors about how we've reduced burn, et cetera, all these things that they're asking for, but it's not going very well. They'll take my meeting, which is good because they're not taking as many meetings as they used to, but they'll listen to me, but they're really not, they're, they're sort of jaundiced about it. They're not really excited about it. I said, okay, so, so the felt experience of this CEO is this thing is falling apart and they're trying to hold it together. And the way they're holding it together is they're taking control and playing cheerleader. That's what they're doing. And they are saying, and I, and I, you know, through the course of the conversation, I said, okay, well, first of all, what does that feel like? And this person said, feels terrible. He said, frankly, I would love to, to find a successor. I, I hate my job. And I said, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I heard that a lot in the pandemic. You see that a lot in the data. A lot of founders leaving, a lot of people are like, nope, not for me. Like founders are both investors and managers and they're also talent, right? And so, so they're on all sides of that equation. And the talent part of them is like, I'm working my ass off for other people, i.e. investors. I've been completely deluded on the cap table because I was in this cheap capital heyday, so I don't have very much of this company. I'm working my ass off in an impossible situation. I hate my job, and and this CEO said something like that, and and that's consistent with what I hear. And then I said, so so like, what parts of that make sense to you? What like what parts of that work make sense to you? He said all of it makes sense. In other words, like, I think I'm doing what needs to be done, but none of it's working. In other words, like, I want to scare people out of spending money. I'm like, all right, I think that's a terrible way to go about achieving the goal of uh, increasing productivity, but let's just go with it for a second. How would you increase, like, like, why is scaring people not working? He said, because they're figuring out ways to hide the spend from me. I'm like, ah, okay. Yep. That's what human beings do is, uh, I often tell the, the super puppy story. One of my favorite, um, human behavior books is a, a book called super puppy. People are always so insulted when I say this, but Super Puppy is this thin little manual about how to raise a really great puppy, how to raise a great dog. And if you want to know about the, simp- the, the simple template for human behavior reads um, Super Puppy, and one of the things it talks about is when you're, when you're raising your puppy, conventional wisdom is if they make a mess on the floor, you drag them over to the mess and you scold them because you want them to associate pain and fear with that event. That's what, so you want them to not want to do that anymore. You want them to go outside. But what happens is the puppy gets really good at figuring out how to make a mess where you don't find it. That's what they get good at. They're not getting good at going outside where you want them to go. They're getting good at hiding from you because they're not thinking at the level, to the extent dogs think, they're not thinking at the level of, oh, I get it. I made a mistake. The big picture is everybody will be happier in the household if I scratch at the door and then go outside and do my business outside. The puppy is having a fear-based reaction, which by the way, the owner is creating a fear-based reaction. That's like, Oh, I get it. I have to figure out how not to have this guy be pissed. Not I have to figure out how to modify my behavior. The behavior modification is only within the context of how to avoid this situation. And so in human terms, when you start making people afraid of spending money, they figure out other paths to waste. They don't get more effective or efficient. They just burn extra time or capital that they already have access to or whatever in other ways. Dramatically drops productivity. So I went through that logic with him and he said, yeah, makes sense. And we went through each of his approaches and why it felt right from a human, like as a human species, like how it would feel it felt right and why it was completely counterproductive and actually would lead to more problems later on.
0: Um, I'm just looking at time (laughs) and realizing we're we're over time. And if we want to go to the hour, we only have about four minutes left, which I doubt is um, sufficient for you to go into what's the solution and clarity management and decide. Um, So Jeff, tell me what's on your mind that we should get out now um, versus sort of uh, a parking lot and save for our next conversation.
1: The thought I want to leave everybody with is all is not lost. This is a huge opportunity. This, this new environment, this new environment of increased requirements across capital talent and growth at the same time, that costs are going up, leaving us with a unique situation in time that we are unfamiliar with and have no best practices playbook for it is a huge opportunity. It requires a different way of approaching things. It requires a method of approaching problems as opportunities. And it requires a structured sort of process to turn inevitable confusion into clarity. The good news is that's what Talentism has been working on for the last nine years, and me personally, well before that. And so I think this is a huge point in time opportunity for great businesses to be built, clarity companies to be built. And I'm incredibly passionate about bringing that message to future podcasts and talking like, what are the methods? like. I just want to give it away for free right now. I just want to say there is a way to do this. There's a way to like turn this prison into um, the home of your dreams, to realize the door to the prison is open. You could walk out anytime. You're just like in your own mind. And there's a set of, under, there's a set of principles and methods and ways of working through this day to day, not big change initiatives, just day to day that can significantly unleash enterprise value without having to um, ignore or hope away the increased growth uh, the increased cost of capital talent and
0: growth much appreciated i think um we we should definitely come back to a part two of this conversation now that we've mil- built the model to help understand what's going on um, and talk about why you're describing this as an opportunity um, and, and very practically, what's, what steps um, those leaders who are seeing themselves in this con- in this set of sort of compounded constraints um, can be doing to seize that opportunity. So we'll be back again soon.